difficult people. And when I say that term, there's every chance you might go scouting for a more maybe uplifting or feel-good podcast episode. But before you do, stick with me. Because in this conversation, you're going to get some tools on how to navigate those difficult moments. And also, maybe more importantly, insights to check and make sure that that difficult person, well, it isn't you. I'm Ali Hill and welcome to Stand Out Life, a podcast dedicated to exploring what does it take to live boldly amongst a busy world. Dr. Rebecca Ray is a clinical psychologist, author and speaker who helps big picture thinking people master their own psychology. Bex's expertise as a professional zigzagger, don't you love that term, sets her apart as one of Australia's most in-demand and authoritative voices in the personal development space. Her science-backed hard and hut truth approach is uniquely informed by her own pivots from pilot to psychologist, from dating men to marrying a woman, and from being burnt out to a best-selling author. We're going to hear all about some of the insights that Bex herself has navigated within these pivots. We're also going to explore boundaries, those hard conversations that actually can be massive game changers, and the tools to reflect on the role that we play in challenging circumstances. Personal, delightful, and filled with practical tools that you'll take plenty away from this conversation with Dr. Rebecca Ray. Beck, great to be chatting with you today. Thanks so much for having me, Ali. We have finally gotten together and I'm <laughs> just so it. excited. I'm so excited. We've planned a couple of conversations and I'm really excited to be diving into this one and jumping into a few different themes that I know you've delved into, not only in your writing, but certainly mm. in your thinking. Before we jump into that though, at the top mm. of your website, it says that you are a pilot turned clinical psychologist. Tell me <laughs> about what are the elements of being a pilot that maybe have been transferable or have helped you in your clinical work? Oh, my goodness. Maybe that just means that I'm just a professional <laughs> anxious person. Um, <laughs> so I started learning to fly when I was 18. My grandfather was a private pilot. My grandfather's one of the greatest loves of my life. He's no longer with us. He passed away in 2014. But um, he said to me, if you can drive a car, you can fly a plane. Now, what I know now is that Ronnie's a liar, that might've been true for him, but it was not true for me. But at the time I was just, I was an anxious teenager. I had started studying psychology, decided I wanted to be a psychologist when I was 15 at a careers night at school. And I went straight into studying psychology out of school. And I don't know, I don't know whether I thought I needed to do something big to prove myself. And I think at the same time, I thought, well, if I could fly a plane, then surely my anxiety would go away. So I learned to fly a plane and my anxiety did not go away. And I thought, well, the answer to that then is just do more flying. So after my private pilot's license, I got a commercial pilot's license and my anxiety didn't go away. So I thought, well, surely you just do more, right? So I got a multi-engine rating and I got a night flying rating and I got an instructor rating. And by that stage, I needed to acknowledge that wanting to vomit on the way to driving to the airport is probably not the thing for someone that's going to go on and be an airline pilot. And even then I won a scholarship to do more flying training from one of the airlines at the time. But I ultimately had to acknowledge that flying was just such a violator of my life non-negotiables that I didn't realize I had until I pushed myself so far outside my comfort zone. Now, as a psychologist, I'm the first to say that if you're scared of something, then the treatment for that is to do the thing, mm -hmm. right? 
unless we're talking a legitimate fear, like don't go and step out in front of a car just to test it out, right? But if you're frightened of speaking in public, the treatment is we go speaking Mm -hmm. in public. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exposure therapy. And so I was just working with what felt like the thing to do. If I push this anxiety to the side and go and do the thing, then the anxiety will go away. And it turns out it was a different kind of anxiety. It wasn't just to overcome this and to be able to fly a plane. I could absolutely fly a plane. I never failed a flight test. However, what I didn't acknowledge was that I'm actually a super boring person, Ali. I really am. I just love doing the same thing all the time. And everything changes on a daily basis when you fly. So air traffic control will give you different commands. The weather is different. Which runway you use will be different. Sometimes the aircraft that you're flying is different. Who's in the air at the same time as you will be different. The flight plan will be different. Now, for a brain like mine that values routine and values at least just entertaining the chaos that is in my head on a daily basis and that's the thing that changes, Mm -hmm. flying just wasn't a good fit for me. And ultimately, if we look at the facts, my home is with words and English and it's not with physics and maths. Like I promise you, it's really not with physics and maths. So despite the fact that I tested it out, I got to the point where I was just like, I'm actually feel depressed now and anxious and I have to do something differently. So I went back to psychology. I never left psychology. Mm -hmm. I ended up taking a year off of my studies so that I could fly full time. And then after that, I went straight back to psychology and ended up finishing my undergrad, doing honours and then doing a professional doctorate. And after working in a hospital for a period of time, I went into private practice. And then I did too much of that because that seems to be my brand just do too much of the thing and (laughs) continue trying to prove yourself and be worthy and not let anyone down. And the career that I thought I was going to be doing until I was 70 was taken away from me. So all because of my own doing. So I failed to look at burnout when burnout started knocking. And I thought that I was the boss. Thank you very much. Burnout was not going to be the boss. And so I I did do a number of things to try to manage the burnout over a period of years. And it got to the point where I just couldn't do it anymore. And I was forced to walk away and I did walk away. And I was hoping the break was only temporary, thorough, but temporary. So I wasn't going to do it all at all for a year or so. And then I go back to it and I tried to go back part-time and unfortunately it just wasn't the same. And so the last patient I saw was the day before I gave birth to Bennett in 2018. And I told everyone that I was going on maternity leave, but in my head, I was giving myself the task of re-establishing my career and never going back into clinical work. So it's it's a heartbreaking story for me because Mm. as I get teary, I have to think about walking away from people that I cared so much about. And this is what made me a fabulous psychologist. I was incredibly good at therapy. For the patients for whom I was their person, we made magic together. It wasn't for everyone, no one is, but I had to walk away for my own mental health. And so I walked away from a very comfortable six-figure income, not knowing how on earth I was going to pay my bills. I didn't have savings or anything that I was going to rely on. And I essentially ate my house for a year. So I just kind of lived off my mortgage for a while, the equity in my mortgage, and thought, what am I going to do? And 
I didn't even have a Facebook profile at this time, Ellie. Like I was so anti-social media. I'm still a bit anti-social media, but you know, like if you're going to do the job that I do now, you have to have it. And so I just thought, well, what if there's a way that I can still practice psychology? So take the wisdom that I've learned in 20 years of clinical practice, but offer it to a mass audience, in which case I use the internet somehow. And so here we are. And today, five years later, I write books and I sell courses online and I do things like this and reach people via podcasts and I do media and I do speaking events and I still get to do what I love. I just get to do it from home without a bra on. <laughs> I do have a bra on right now for you, actually. You're welcome. feel very privileged. <laughs> I do too, just by the way, but as soon as we're off, we'll, we'll whip them off. Absolutely. <laughs> I back agree. into being comfortable. Thank you so much for sharing a lot of that. And I know people listening will connect to elements of whether it's that push kind of culture of just keep doing, just keep doing, just keep doing. I'll finally break this. And it's almost that, particularly when you are successful, and I use that term loosely, but where you talked about you were mm. actually a good pilot, you were obviously mm. a very good psychologists working with your clients, that sometimes that can be hard. It's then looking at the mirror of the cost of that on a personal kind of level and how important it is to listen to that, to be able to tune into that for yourself. To listen and maybe hear things that you don't want to hear. I think that's what I did incorrectly for so long was it's not like I didn't listen. I did. I just didn't want to hear what I was being told because what I was being told was it was against my life plan. And I was so rigid when I was younger that I must meet these milestones because society says that I should. And if I'm single, I was single for a large part of my adult life prior to meeting my wife when I was 33. And I thought, well, if I'm single, I've got to compensate for that. I've got to make sure that I'm at least seen to be successful in other areas if I've failed to get married by 30, which is just so, I'm 44 now. It's just so ridiculous when I look back and I look back at baby Beck and think, don't, don't do that to yourself. Like Mm. it's just made up and put on us by the media. So my It's not like I didn't have intuition. I absolutely did. I'm a psychologist. I know the signs. I just didn't want to see them because I made that mean that I was failing. Mm, We don't want to hear it at the time. And and in fact, the pushing through the not listening is easier to do. And for me, as I'm hearing you talking, what's kind of coming up is more just like the grief for the 20-year-old version of me that I go, man, I wish I could just tell you just to have fun and (laughs) none of it matters. And and to enjoy it more. Not that I didn't, but Just go eat something and wear the bikini and know that it's actually going to be better than you can ever imagine. But sometimes it's not going to look the way you think it needs to look, but it will be better because you can't imagine it. Mm. Yeah, it is so different. In terms of the last five years and finding a way to express the wisdom through words, What does that expression, how does that tap into who you are, your creativity, what you want to contribute? Because you are prolific. You have just published your sixth book. (laughs) So finding ways with words and expressing the wisdom through that, what has that given to you? That's a really interesting question. It's given me access to a level of meaning in my work that 
doesn't have the same costs associated with the one-on-one work that I was doing. But it's broader than that. I get messages from people all around the world that have come into contact with my work saying, I've just read your book or I just heard you on this podcast or whatever it is that where they've seen me and they've said, you said this and it really has made me see my life differently. And I was like, I think for me, it's healed my grief that I had to walk away from something that I loved so much Mm. because I thought, well, if I leave clinical work, then I have to leave psychology because how else do I do the thing, you know? So it's given me back my first love, I think, which is curiosity about the human condition and helping in any way I can other humans to live well, because being human is so bloody hard. So I'm someone for whom human is being is hard. Like it's, I feel, I'm a big feeler. And if anything I can do or say or write makes a difference to someone else's experience, then that is the meaning behind every single piece of work that I do and that I write. But the position now to be able to transform that to say a one-on-one appointment to a book that I write, then A, it means that I still get to reach people and we still get that connection, even though it might be at a distance now or across screens. And B, it forced me very reluctantly because my brain's super lazy to consolidate my ideas. So one of the things I actually had a lot of difficulty with when I first started in the online arena and even in the, I guess, content creation arena is what do I think? Like, what do I actually think? What are my opinions? How do I do psychology? Because when we're trained, we're trained in certain modalities of therapy. And I have strong feelings about what works and what doesn't work because I could never sell a particular type of therapy if I didn't feel like it actually worked in practice. So when I first started, I was like, well, what do I think? What are the things that work? And how would I wrap that up in either book form or course form or even like short interview forms so that someone listening or reading can take something away. So I had to get over my imposter syndrome, I think, because I kind of thought, who am I to be interviewed? I don't know. I just sit in a room with clients privately and we do the thing together. It's not like that when you're asked to create a piece of content, whether that be a book or whether it be something bigger, like a keynote presentation. Not that that's bigger than a book, but still, you know, it has Mm. bigger ramifications in terms of audience. You have to back yourself enough to know that you can put something together that's going to reach people and land for people. And initially I sucked at that, Ali, like honestly. I mean, I've never been someone that's run around and gone, look at me, look at how good I am. But I'd done enough of therapy to reach a state of unconscious competence. Like I just knew that once I got in the room, I'd be good. I'd be able to do my job. Mm. Yeah. It was like starting a new career. I had to start as a beginner again, then just had to go, well, I got offered a publishing contract and I was like, well, yes, I want to write a book, but how does one write a book? And I still don't think I know the answer. I just like do it each time. I was like, I I guess so. Yeah. You want me to write a book on boundaries? All right. I'll try. Find a way. I love that art of that form of expression forces you is the wrong word, but it means that you have to figure out what you believe or what you think or what Mm. the research is also saying based on and no doubt with that experience that you had in the clinical room to go, I know what works, what doesn't work, what might be some of the key things that come into play. With this sixth book that you've put out, Mm -hmm. what is your writing process if you have one? Like how did you approach this book? 
It's interesting that you should ask me this about difficult people because difficult people is the one that nearly killed me. And um, You need to write sorry. a book called Easy People and the book will be easy to write, Beck. That's your problem. <laughs> that would be fine. That would be fine. I can write that in just a couple of chapters. So I'll tell you my normal process and I'll tell you what happened with difficult people. Mm-hmm. So I suck at ideas. So generally what happens is my publisher says, what's the next book going to be about? And I say, I don't know. I want to write about X. And she says, nah, what about you write about Y? And I'll say, oh, I don't really want to, I don't want to write a book on that topic. And she's like very diplomatically and super polite. She says something which essentially translates to, well, do you want a contract or not? And so we reached this period where I agree to write the topic and You know, she's the most talented one in being able to have a finger on the zeitgeist of the time in terms of what people are talking about and what they need solutions for, which is essentially why Setting Boundaries, my fourth book, became a bestseller was because I never wanted to write a book on boundaries. But my publisher came to me and she said, people are struggling. Can you write a book on boundaries? And I wanted to write a book on self-worth because every single client I'd ever seen struggled with feeling good enough. And then I recognized that there was the relationship between boundaries being the language of self-worth. And once I made that connection, I was like, sure, I can actually write a book on boundaries because I still get what I want, which is to write a book on self-worth, but we're just going to give them the strategies of boundaries to be able to put the practice of having self-worth into place. So normally what I would do is I actually map out a book. So I use Canva. I, I use a mind map on Canva and I go ahead and I map out the chapters. So I have a very rough non-fiction guide in my head, which is basically tell them what you're going to tell them. In the middle, you tell them. And then in the conclusion, you tell them what you told them. And I break that down into, well, what are the pillars of this particular topic that I need to be able to offer the reader so that the reader walks away with something solid? Now, I'm a big lover of personal development literature and self-development, self-help, whatever you want to call it, which means I've, I've touched a lot of it. I've read a lot of it. And I have strong feelings about self-help that's a bit vacuous. So sometimes there's personal development literature out there that I feel says a lot, but doesn't actually offer much for the person to walk away with. And so the guiding focus of my work is I I would like to offer enough depth that the person feels like they understand why I'm asking them to do something. So I'm not just going to tell you to, I don't know, breathe differently or to set a boundary using this language without explaining all the backstory for why you're having trouble setting boundaries in the first place. So normally there's a map. And once I have the map, that map gets translated into a table of contents. So I'm very fussy about having a table of contents to start because I need the skeleton to put organs and skin on. If I don't know what the skeleton is, I don't know where I'm going. Mm-hmm. And then I write. I make it sound super easy. It's not. I no, hate no, writing. No, but you've got, <laughs> got boxes. Yeah, let's be, Fill the box. Let's be clear. <laughs> I've written six books and I do not like writing. Um, if my publisher is listening, I love you. But you also know that I don't like writing. I like the outcome. So I'm very much committed in a cost of living crisis and a Western society that is constantly asking so many demands of people on a daily basis that I commit to the process of writing so that someone can go and spend 25 bucks and get really decent information that could potentially transform their life. So that's what carries me through my very strong resistance to writing in the first place. Now, what happened with difficult people was I tried that. (laughs) 
I tried my mapping out process and I thought I had it. And I started writing. I did push fairly heavily up against the deadline. So I didn't give myself a whole lot to get the manuscript down. And that's okay because I generally spend some months with it percolating in the back of my brain before I actually start the writing process. So I sit down to write and um, I just struggled so hard with it and I struggled with my point of view. So I kept on swapping between what if you're dealing with a difficult person versus what if you are the difficult person. So I was kind of answering these two perspectives the whole way through and I had to submit a manuscript for the first time in my career as an author to my publisher. I actually wrote to her the week prior and said, I know the deadline's next week, but I need to tell you that the manuscript that I'm submitting, some of it is the best that I've ever written and some of it is a piece of shit. And they were my exact words. My publisher, who is the most beautiful person in the history of the planet, wrote back and said, look, Beck, like, I'm sure it's fine, but don't panic, just send it in and we'll deal with it. And I wrote back and went, no, no, um, it really is a piece of shit and I can't get any further without an editor. So I very much struggled to see the forest for the trees for this. And normally I do have the capacity to have a bit of a helicopter view, but I got so stuck in this that I couldn't do anything more. So I submitted it. And the beauty of having a long-term relationship with my publisher, so I've done five books with Pan Macmillan. My first book was with a publisher in the US, is that I could submit with that vulnerability now. And I don't feel like they're going to drop me and say, no, this is like crap and we're not going to do another book with you. So instead I just said, I need my editor. So I have an editor that I prefer to work with. Mm -hmm. Then what happened was I submitted 72,000 words and I got back 35 and I had three weeks to finish it. So in three weeks, I then sent back 72,000 words again. So I wrote 35,000 words in three weeks, which put me under a huge amount of stress But at the same time, it also showed me that I could have avoided that, I think, if I had had the confidence earlier on in the process to say, I need an editor now just to talk about the structure and where I'm going. So I continued to learn about our relationships as a team and what I'm allowed to do and what I'm not allowed to do, because the publishing industry is really interesting in that they don't tell you how to write a book. No one sits down and tells you. They just say, yeah, you're going to write this topic yeah, we've sold it to the board. The board want that topic. So here's a contract. When can you deliver it? No one sits down and says, this is going to happen next. And then this, and then this. So I just know for the next one, and there will be a next one because I was just down at Pan Macmillan two weeks ago, releasing difficult people. And my publisher walked in and gave me a kiss and then said, so what's the next book going to be? And I was like, (laughs) calm down, give me a chance to breathe. So obviously she doesn't hate me for submitting a piece of shit, but yeah, it's, The learning of the process has been powerful and I think I won't cause myself that level of stress again because I'll act quicker. Which is, you know, I mean, there's a life lesson in that in so many different areas, right? And sometimes it's the shit words we've got to get out in order to get to what does this actually mean. If we dive into the book Mm. and it is a difficult topic, like it's not Mm. only is the book called Difficult People, it is a difficult nuanced topic in terms of yeah. angle and direction and even the title itself in some of the work that we do more working in corporates and in leadership kind of realms and the kind of thing will be how do I lead and manage a difficult person 
Yes. And we'll often talk a lot about the power of labels, as I know you are very aware of in the work that you do. If we call someone difficult, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy and the only thing we ever see is them being difficult and we don't see them for the whole person that they are. Yeah. How do you define or how do we see what is a difficult person? And you talk about state, trait and disorder within the book. How do you define it? In its simplest terms, a difficult person is someone who crosses your boundaries consistently over and over again and or projects their dysregulation or stuff onto you. So a difficult person is someone who basically doesn't respect you and in doing so violates your psychological safety or your emotional safety in your interactions with them. And then when they do kind of lose their composure, that composure is projected onto you as opposed to a dangerous person, a dangerous person is further up the continuum where their transgressions of boundaries leans over into criminal behaviours. So a violation of your physical and sexual safety, those types of things. Yeah, so useful to think about it on a continuum as opposed to it's just one or the other. That's right. And on the other side of the continuum are safe people. And those people can simply be comfortable people. So you and I don't know each other very well, but I know your energy enough. And from our emails and the energy in our emails that you're safe. And then I have my best friends who I've known for decades, who I call healing. So there are those people in our lives who are so safe and who see us and honor our being and love us for simply being who we are so much so that they become healing for us. The people who are not difficult just fall into a general category of comfortable and they're the ones we don't second guess. So we don't need to necessarily need to rethink the relationship. Whereas difficult people and that shade on that continuum are the ones that make us doubt ourselves. They make us think, oh my goodness, am I doing something wrong here? Like, is it just me or what's happening here? As opposed to, yeah, I love that kind of healing, comfortable, difficult, dangerous on a kind of continuum. What about those people who are just annoying? (laughs) They're not really our people. Yeah. Kind of not safe, unsafe. They just are, but not like they're just great on us. Yeah. They just have a personality style that doesn't fit for us. They exist, unfortunately, um, because it would be super nice if the world just went our way all the time. And everyone just fitted in with what we wanted, but that's not humans. So this also fits in with how do we know when someone's a difficult person versus if they're just having a bad day or someone we don't like. So there are people out there that won't like you and there are people out there that you won't like. And that's a fact of life. Um, I think one of the things, especially as women, because we're so often conditioned to be polite and to be kind and friendly to everyone. It's one of the things that is difficult for us to accept as we grow older, I think, is that we actually have permission to not like people. And that doesn't mean that you can be disrespectful. It doesn't excuse unkind behavior, but you are actually allowed not to like someone and that is totally fine. And in fact, expect it because you can't, you're not like, what do they say? You're not avocado um, or you're not chocolate. So you're not going to like everyone, they're not going to like you. No, the goal is not to get everyone up the healing end of the continuum, right? We're not, no, you know, no, exactly. Exactly. We can't through. just mm. push everyone over the other side. However, there will be some people that are not difficult. They're just unlikable to you. And it's important to know the difference because there might be some people who 
you have to spend time with because they're in your workplace and therefore you can't necessarily avoid them. But they do things in a different way to you that you might find a little bit abrasive, but that doesn't mean that they're actively and intentionally crossing your boundaries. It just means they have a different way of operating in the world. So there is a level of responsibility and accountability we must take for ourselves that, you know, people can have their own opinions and beliefs and we don't need to then throw up labels like you're a difficult person just because it's something that we don't like. So that probably, yeah, ties beautifully into that kind of second part of the question is when are these labels, when is it useful and when is it limiting Yeah, to call someone difficult? Yeah, it's a really good question. The title of this book was going to involve narcissism. And I pushed back heavily on that because narcissism is often used in pop psychology and around social media now incorrectly. And it's, I just don't love any clinical term that's bandied around to simply satisfy someone's discomfort with someone else. So we changed the title to Difficult People. And I was very aware, as you probably know, I spent an entire first part of the book addressing labels because labels can be incredibly problematic within and of themselves. Now, the problem is that we're also human and humans use judgment and boxes to cope with the millions of pieces of information that we're flooded with daily. So the brain categorizes, it's what we do, it's how we process information. So where labels like difficult people um, becomes helpful is if you are sitting in an interaction or a relationship with someone that is perpetually making you doubt yourself, perpetually making you feel like you're a second-rate citizen, and someone comes along and shows you a book that validates every part of your experience and says you're feeling like this because this person is difficult. Now, that doesn't mean that I then write in the book, so go and tell them. Like, now you know that, just rock up to them and go, you're a difficult person. At no point in the book do I say that, um, just to make that With clear. With a few swear words in, in yeah, between. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a few exclamation marks if it's in an email. Why didn't that work, Beck? Come on. Yeah, why didn't it work? Like, surely that's the treatment, right? So a difficult person label can be helpful for the person that is bearing the brunt of the difficult person in their own heads Mm -hmm. to be able to go, hold on a second, I can call this something and it then validates my experience. And then it shows me a way that I can actually work with this person or move around them so that they don't have the same impact on me. Now, when these labels start to become limiting is if they're thrown about to actually absolve the person interacting with the difficult person of responsibility or accountability. So if you're at work and you're just going, well, they're just difficult. And so you then decompensate in your own behavior, or you start to behave in ways that are disrespectful yourself, simply because they're difficult. So it's not my problem. It's their fault that doesn't work either. So the label itself is not a get out of jail free card. Mm. You know, it's not so that you can then go, well, it's not my fault. I didn't have to contribute to that project because I was put in it with that difficult person. I didn't want to do it because they're difficult. No, you still work in this place too. And you still have a role to actually manage your relationships. So one of the things I often write that my style of writing is both heart and hard truths. And the heart and hard truth of this is that 
You might be dealing with a difficult person. In fact, I guarantee that if you've picked up the book, they probably are difficult because difficult people don't go into bookshops and buy books called difficult people. So it's very likely the person that you think is difficult in your life probably is. And as you read the book, the hard truth as well is, yeah, they're tough, but also it's your responsibility to manage your interactions with them. And if you keep giving that person access to you, that's also your responsibility. You know, you're also maintaining this cycle. So for those that are listening and nodding and maybe they've got people in mind, they've got names that have sprung up as we're talking about the difficult people and we've just told them that they can't basically hand out the red card and say, (laughs) that's it, we're no longer working together or we're no longer, you're no longer in this family or whatever circumstance it is. Where do we go next? So that sense of, okay, unfortunately, Bex told me I need to take some responsibility here. And it's almost like, and I think in one of them, you talk about children in adult bodies bodies that we, yeah. that we go back to kind of the schoolyard of, well, he said, she said, and I don't want to can mm. happen, right? Mm. In kind of very real adult relationships. Yeah. Where do we go first? What do we do next? Yeah, it's a good question. And giving out the card made me think of Bennett's been making money recently. I wish it was that easy, but he's got this little Tupperware container mm. that he's filled yeah. with pieces of card and he's written numbers on them. And the money turned into certain passes. So yesterday he actually gave me a pass to the zoo and he'd written zoo on it. And he said, here's your pass. And you also have $99 to spend there. And I was like, great. But wouldn't that be amazing if we just walked around and went, here's the difficult person card. I'm giving that to you today. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I wonder how that would go down. Sit in your corner and don't come out. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're in timeout. So the first thing that I would encourage people to do is to set boundaries. Now, the hard part about this is that it can go one of two ways with difficult people. If they're a card-carrying difficult person, they probably don't give a shit about your boundaries, honestly, and that's why they're difficult. However, I need you to test out your boundaries first because sometimes we think we've set a boundary, but we actually just thought about the boundary, and a boundary that's not communicated is not a boundary. So, You need to start, especially if you're in a workplace setting, and sometimes if you're in a family setting too, because we make assumptions about family that they just should know. So you need to start with communicating the boundaries just in case people don't know in the first place. Now, if the boundary is then not respected, as we probably expect if it's a difficult person, then I want you to remember that as an adult, you are allowed to decide which other adults have access to you. Now, for some people, especially people that have been raised by grown-ups who disrespected their boundaries and didn't allow them to have feelings and have needs and instead railroaded them and punished them and dismissed them, it can be groundbreaking news to think, hold on a second, I'm actually allowed to say whether this adult is allowed near me or not. So I'm here to say it out loud. You are allowed to remove that person from your life. Now, sounds easy. Everything is easier said than done except for breathing. So let's acknowledge that. I'm not saying that you go out and you cut that person off now. Don't go out and just say, Dr. Rebecca Ray said, I'm going to cut you off. But what I am saying is some people are so incredibly damaging and they have such limited insight and lack of willingness to change that sometimes you don't have any other opportunity if you're going to protect yourself in the long term. Now, this means people that you're related to. It can mean partners. And it can also mean that you need to find different employment or stop working with that particular client. 
because they're harmful for you. Now, again, we are living in a cost of living crisis. Please don't misinterpret me. I'm not saying that it's easy to go and get another job. I'm not saying that. And I'll talk in a moment about strategies that you can use when you have to continue sharing space with them in the time in between you considering your long-term options. But first and foremost, you get to be the boss of who has access to you. Now, let's say they're family and you don't want to cut them off for whatever reason. Let's say that you work with them and they're your boss and you can't just shaft them because it's not that easy. So the first thing I want you to remember in this situation is that sometimes you can simply change the way that you interact with them and scale it to see whether or not you can find a medium that's not as damaging for you. So instead of a face-to-face meeting, you might do a phone call. Instead of a phone call, if a phone call is not going to work, you might do email or text message or FaceTime. If it's a family member, you might um, limit your contact to just sending a card on Mother's Day or Father's Day or whatever the occasion is. Grade your contacts so that harm is minimized. Then the next thing that I want to remind you is that I think it can never be overestimated how incredibly important the healing relationships are from good people in our life. So yes, I wrote a whole book on difficult people, but I also need to remind you that one of the ways we stay healthy around these people is by focusing on the people that make us feel good. So if you're forced to stay in contact with this person that's harmful in your life, then I want you to make sure that you spend as much time as possible for people that are healing for you, or at the very least comfortable, but preferably healing. And make sure that you tell them what it is that you're trying to do with this difficult person so you have someone that you can debrief with, unless you have a therapist, in which case I strongly suggest that you debrief with your therapist as well. But the most important thing is access. And then if you can't change the access immediately, change the format and focus on people that make you feel good. Even coming back to what you were saying around kind of wanting people to tap back into their self-worth, it's actually then Mm. my self-worth is not reliant on this person because I've got other avenues and whether it's those healing people, those kind of core people. So then it just changes that dynamic of how I can interact with this person. Yeah. And even that permission that you've said with a disclaimer of don't do it straight away, but just that permission of you get to choose, there can be a, an element of liberation that comes with yeah. that in the moment. I mean, you can well. do it straight away. I just want you to do it from a mindful perspective. You might have been thinking about this for years and listening to this conversation is enough for you to go, enough is enough, right? I need mm. to do something. Fine. I just don't want you to be reactive because. We're talking about big things here. Cutting off a relationship is a big thing with big consequences. And so I'm not encouraging people to simply act willy-nilly, but I also acknowledge that sometimes we think about things for years before we just hear one thing and think, I've had enough, I'm going to do something about that. I love where you mentioned the importance of boundaries and getting clear on that. Mm. You can share that with the person, whether or not they will listen or respect that is actually not within your control. Sometimes the difficult behaviours that might be around us can make us highlight or recognise a boundary we may not have been aware of uh, to articulate or to get clear on what's important to us or not important to us. And so sometimes that rub or the pressing of our buttons can happen because we actually haven't gotten clear on what that boundary is. 
What are some of the signs, and this probably ties into your other book around boundaries, which I know is also, you know, a big part of this thread of difficult people, but what might be some of the signs of someone who goes, I don't really know what A, a boundary is or what my boundary is around this other than I just don't like it, I don't feel good around this person and I I don't know what my boundary is here. Yeah, good question. First of all, a boundary is, let's look at the definition of a boundary. I don't know what the actual definition is. But my definition is that it's a circle of preservation and empowerment. So I want you to think about a line that you draw around yourself or your personal resources that allows you to choose how someone has access to your personal resources and when. So your personal resources are things like time, emotional energy, mental energy, psychological energy, physical energy, sexual energy, money, attention, care, support, love. All of those things are personal resources. So if you don't set boundaries around your personal resources, then what happens is unintentionally, people will just have access to them in an unfiltered way because you've allowed that. You've left the door open. So don't be surprised when someone walks in and stays in because it benefits them. And so what will happen is you will start getting information from your feelings, from your mind that says things exactly like you just said, Ali, which is, I don't like it. This feels uncomfortable. That is information. So anytime you're feeling any form of irritation, frustration, resentment, or anger, it's very likely you've had a boundary crossed. So you don't necessarily need to know where every single boundary is because we can then respond effectively once we have that information. So for example, I am married to Nissa and she's an extrovert and I'm an introvert and her family are a lot. I love her family. They are not difficult people, but the way they love each other is bloody suffocating. So when we first got together, I was like on my best behavior, right? Because I'd never had like a healthy relationship and I was just like amazed that this person could love me for all of my parts. And so I just did whatever they wanted to do. So they would come and stay in our house and want to spend every waking minute together. I'm not joking. Like from the minute you wake up to the minute you go to bed, you're in conversation with them. No, I'm sorry, but I'm not even available for that with my own child. Like just not, I can't do it. And again, in Taylor Swift terms, I am the problem. Like absolutely. But I didn't know that. I didn't know that I was so introverted that having someone stay in my space would actually be harmful for my mental health. I didn't actually know this for a couple of years. We've been together 10 years now. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until maybe about halfway through our relationships and maybe we are five years in and I was like, I just can't do this. Like I can't have people stay. It's, there's something about you which allows me to live with you 24-7 and our child But anyone else and I just don't have the personal resources available because there's a risk that I'll turn into someone that I don't want to be because I'm so affected by that. Now, Nissa was like, do you not like my family? And I said, no, it's not that. And this is how we have to take back our power around boundaries. Boundaries are simply us actually looking at our own resources and saying, this is what my need is. I'm offering you a user manual for how to love and respect me. Now, please tell me what your boundaries are so I can do the same for you. They're a gift in relationships. But because we've been conditioned, especially as women, to not be mean or selfish or diva-like or hysterical, then communicating our boundaries can feel like we are actually being all those things. 
So I actually had a conversation with Nissa's mum in particular, she's also sensitive like Nissa, and said, this is not about you. It's not about anything to do with your family. It's about me and what I need to be okay. And so, yes, I understand that you might do things differently. We now do things like I say, go and have a girls weekend with your mum and your sister, like go spend all the time together. Mm-hmm. I don't need to be a part of that. And then we'll come together in small doses and we're great. So it's the communication around that and being vulnerable enough to sit together and say, I love you so much, but the way for me to love you so that my needs are also met is that we're going to spend this much time together and then I'm going to take a break. And it's got nothing to do with you. It's got everything to do with my social energy battery being very, very, very quickly flattened. (laughs) (laughs) It's exhausting. She's like, off you go, send me the photos, but look at them when I'm ready. (laughs) Yeah. And I've also explained to her, like I've just done a bit of TV recently. I've been in Sydney. There's a lot of extroverted energy when I release books. I now know, because I've done it for years now, or at least Nissa knows, she knows that I'll come home, I'll put my earbuds in, and I'm not available for talking to anyone. I love it. Like, Bennett will sit on me, and I'll have a dog and a child on me, because everyone's like, oh my God, she's home, but I just don't have the outward energy. And I think we can take responsibility for how we communicate that. I love you, and these are my needs. Mm. I love you, and this is not about you, it's about me. But I also think that a lot of this is not our fault because we've been conditioned to think that boundaries are mean and that's bullshit. Yeah. There's something really powerful when we articulate, we give permission for others to do the same, to be able to kind of go, great and awesome and this is what I need or this is, Yeah, you express that really beautifully in that invitation of not only this is here, but let me love you the way that makes sense for you and empowers you and what does that look like often can be hard and vulnerable with the people who love us the most (laughs) and with those who are more in that kind of comfortable, annoying, and then your difficult area, they're hard to articulate those boundaries because even where you got that, you know, well, do you not like my family? That can be 10 times, right? Well, do you not like working here or are you not a team player? Yes. You know, all of that, not just self-worth, but employment worth, identity of role, those sorts of things can be questioned. And there can be times we get really clear on what our boundaries are. I always kind of smile. I think it happens to me personally, but I've certainly heard other people as well. When we set a boundary, it's almost like the universe conspires to challenge it and goes, did you really mean that? (laughs) Yeah. Are you going to stick to that or can I actually get in another way? Yeah. How do we stick to a boundary? So it's one thing to get clear on what it is. It's another thing to be vulnerable and courageous enough to articulate it when it gets questioned or gets challenged. Yeah. How do we sit in that? By reverse engineering it. And that's by thinking of the cost by not sticking to it. So sometimes all we can rely on in the moment, because in the moment, the discomfort is screaming, right? If I speak up for this, I'm going to be perceived as difficult. I'm going to be the one that's seen to be not a team player or letting the team down. I'm going to be the one that seems like I'm not being flexible. But if you then think of what's the cost of me not sticking to this? What's the cost of me compromising my values and my integrity by allowing this boundary to again be crossed. Now, I'm not saying that any of us are perfect. I'm certainly not, and I wrote the bloody book on setting boundaries. I'm not perfect at it. All I'm suggesting is that if you get it right enough, you stay in integrity with yourself. 
And sometimes when you're in the discomfort of, oh, I have to say it again, they're testing me, especially with someone that you've set a boundary with and they come back and pretend like they never heard it. Bullshit, you never heard it. And, you know, you want to roll your eyes like I'm doing right now. And that's fine, but you can't do that in front of their face, right? So instead, when you have to go back and restate the boundary, I want you to think of your tomorrow self, your next week self, your next year self, and even your 80-year-old self. What does that self want to look back on how you've behaved in this moment? Because I think that sometimes we get so caught up in just wanting to be liked or wanting to be easy or wanting to be the one that's seen not to rock the boat that we forget that crossing our own integrity is actually the biggest discomfort of all. Is there ever a risk that we become the difficult person or what are the signs that we are the difficult person? Yeah, absolutely. The first thing is that asking that question probably means you're not a card-carrying difficult person. So the fact that you're even concerned that you're a difficult person, you're probably not. (laughs) That's not to say that you won't be a difficult person during a particular chapter in your life. I remember when I was writing my thesis, so I was doing my doctorate, I was living in a very small town in New South Wales called Taree. And I was driving back and forth to Newcastle for classes. So my week looked like I would go to work in the hospital for three days. Then the other two days in the week, I would get up at 5am and drive to Newcastle two hours. Then I would go to class all day for eight hours. And then I would go to placement all day for eight hours. Then I'd do a three hour postgraduate class that night, stay over, do the same thing the next day. And then I would drive back to Taree. And then on the weekend, I would um, write my thesis. I don't know how I didn't die. I did that for three years. And so during that time, I was not my best self. And I remember one day my manager at the time asked me to do something in a joking way and I turned around and went, get fucked. And then I realised what came out of my mouth and I looked at him and he goes, maybe don't tell your manager to get fucked. And I went, yeah, sorry. (laughs) And I was on the edge. My functioning, I was so anxious and so on the edge that I was so easily tipped into disrespectful behavior like that. Now, it didn't actually come out very often, but I I was like a tightly coiled spring the entire time, so easily just ready to explode, really, that I remember that moment and thinking, get your shit together. Like, really, this is that's not acceptable. But honestly, when we can go home and feel guilty about those things and then seek to repair you're not a difficult person. You're just a human having a hard time. And so I think when we're dealing with difficult people, sometimes the best thing to do initially is to offer them the most generous interpretation. So what's the most generous interpretation that you could make about this person's behavior right now? Are they going through a divorce? Has their parent got terminal cancer? Are they, you know, in a period of depression that you don't know about? And then if you simply see it consistently time and time again, then it's very likely that they probably are difficult. But we all have periods where we have the capacity to be difficult simply because of what we're facing on a daily basis. You said before we can often have boundaries, but we've hinted at them. We actually haven't explicitly said it. How do we have compassion for others, which is kind of what you're talking about? All of us have had period phases, things that are going on, and some of that we may not even know what someone's going through, right? How do we have compassion for others while still hold those boundaries for ourselves? So internally, that would look like I really feel strongly. I actually just had a conversation right before this with a friend of mine who has a boss who's being incredibly difficult. And he said, 
She is still deep in the depths of her grief for her lost husband who died two years ago. And I have so much compassion for that. But also referring to female members of her team with this particular label is unacceptable. So I think it's the answer to that is and both. Two things can be true at once. There is so much duality in all of this that someone can be behaving in an unacceptable way and you can also have compassion for their experience. And wouldn't we love that for ourselves if we're on the other foot, like if we're going through challenges for someone to also tell me, hey, not okay? Mm. Not okay, but also are you okay? okay? Mm. Are you having a hard time? I think we can do that for ourselves as well. I certainly didn't when I was back in my days of studying. I still feel awful when I say that out loud how I behaved. Um, And I think, God, you entitled little child. Like, but honestly, I was on the edge of my functioning. And I think sometimes if we met ourselves with compassion and we could say, look, yeah, not your finest hour, but also you were trying as hard as you possibly could. And now you know better, you can do better. We get just so much more out of ourselves and our relationships when we operate like that. Compassion for ourselves is is so critical. I want to look at this from a slightly different tack. So really great to step in, to have clarity, to have those conversations. They're bloody hard and mm-hmm. there's something about having them face-to-face. We also mm-hmm. live in a very digital world at the moment. Yep. It's been somewhat heightened through COVID with Zoom and a lot of our meetings, work from home has obviously gone through the roof. But also because we, you know, even with family and friends, we're doing a lot of FaceTime, there are keyboard Mm. warriors, there are text messages. How do we deal with these conversations when, Mm. and I almost want to be simplified, it used to be you could come into the family (laughs) gatherings and then maybe not go back into them for six months, but now we almost carry them in our back pocket. Yeah. You've got your work email with you all the time. Bosses now have like your access to all of Mm -hmm. us all the time. How do we navigate these conversations in both the digital platform as much as we do in the physical face-to-face conversations? I think by embracing the block and delete button, you know, if we're talking about strangers, block and delete, mute, like I'm a big fan of mindfully curating your feeds. Now, this might go against every kind of woke social media person. I consider myself quite woke and quite proud to be woke. However, I don't think that we should just allow anything and anyone in our feeds in the name of exposing ourselves to other people's beliefs. I think if someone is being difficult and potentially toxic and damaging in your social media spaces, you're the boss of those spaces. Get rid of them. Don't engage. Don't invite more of it by entering into an argument. Now, if we're talking about an extension of spaces we can't necessarily avoid, like work or family, this is where you get to be the boss of access, right? So you get to be the boss of setting expectations around when you'll check emails outside of work and whether or not you'll be responding. And in that, I need you to take responsibility for things like notifications. You can't just say, I'm not going to check emails outside of work and then be beholden to a red dot on your phone. Like Mm. that's not going to work. If you set an expectation that you're not available to check those emails outside of work and then you can't resist that red dot, I need you to turn the notifications off or even delete the app until Monday, you know, if you need that time separated. If you're in a family chat, and I've done this, bloody people insist on adding me to chats. I don't want to, I don't know. 
No, I'm trying to introvert over here. I don't need you to randomly bloody have a chat that I don't want to watch your chat. No. <laughs> I'm laughing. I was chatting to a really good friend of mine the other day and we were at an event and so we started up a WhatsApp group and she's like, exactly what I need, another bloody WhatsApp group. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, I don't want to be part enough. of your group. <laughs> I love you all individually. I don't want to see all the interactions. It's bad enough that occasionally I have to be involved in a group face-to-face. So you can use humor. I, I use humor. I, I will actually go into the group and say, I'm too introverted for this, guys. Like, enjoy, but I'm leaving. And it actually says, like, Rebecca Ray left the group. And I have to giggle at that because it's very on brand for me. Like, no, this is too much. But you have permission to curate where your energy goes. And the thing is, the online world won't do that for us because it is actually predicated on demanding our attention to make money for big corporations. So you get to be the one that says, no, I am not willing to offer my energy in that way. So for example, Instagram is a primary app used in my daily work because it happens to be where I have the biggest following. I have notifications turned off because a lot happens on Instagram I don't want to know until it's part of my workday. Mm -hmm. So I will then go and consciously check and respond to comments at a certain time of day. And then I basically go in and then go out. I'm actually the worst social media friend in the history of the world because I won't like any of your stuff because I'm literally going on there to do my job and then I get off it so that it's not the boss of my time. I'm the boss of how I use that app. Now, again, I'm not perfect at it and there will be times when I'm extra tired when I find myself just scrolling, looking at bloody miniature donkeys and cows. And sometimes that's actually good for my mental health, but I'm always endeavoring to try to be more mindful with where my energy is demanded versus where I offer it intentionally. Again, liberating, we can take control of that. We can have a choice around that. From this book, what do you hope people will take away? What key actions do you hope that they will step into? I hope they trust themselves. I don't want them to do anything I've said. My work is not about telling people what to do. My work is empowering people to make decisions for themselves to be able to live life on their own terms. So if someone reads any of my books, any of the six of them, or difficult people, including difficult people, if you walk away and go, now, I am trusting my intuition and I'm confidently stepping in that direction or not even confidently, but I'm going to do the thing anyway, because this is the life I want to create for myself. That would be the biggest gift for me. Beck, thank you for sharing your words and some of your insights and into your stories. I've loved this conversation. I want to come with the final question. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? It means two things to me. The first is that should I live that long, that if I'm ever lucky enough to be in an 80-year-old lady's body, I can look back on a life that felt meaningful to me based on what that means to me. And it also means that I'm making a difference to other humans who are trying to be human. I feel like my work in this world is that somehow I get to translate concepts into a way that other people can understand so their experience is not so painful. And so while I do that for myself, if I'm doing that for others too, and then somehow it all aligns so that I sit in that 80-year-old's body and she goes, you did good, then that would be a standout life to me. 
sign up for that for sure. How to be more human. Thank you so much, Beth. Thank you for having me, Ali. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then let's keep the conversation going. The main place that I hang out is on Instagram at Ali Hill, A-L-I-H-I-L-L. One of the ways you can continue to support me and the team behind the podcast is if you could take two minutes just to rate and review Standout Life Podcast on whatever platform you are listening to. You can also subscribe to the podcast so you'll be notified when new episodes come out. And if this conversation is one that you know that someone in your world would get huge amount of value out of, then please share it with them or maybe share it on your socials. Once again, thanks so much for tuning in, for your ongoing support and for joining me in exploring what does it really take. As always, this is Standout Life Podcast and I'm Ali Hill.